Welcome to the important part, investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the important part. We are here in November, almost at the end of the year, and some observations, calling this section taking a pulse on the market. Some observations since maybe September, early October of this year is that there's been a pretty notable shift in markets. There's been a pretty notable shift in investor sentiment, and we're operating under this almost invincible optimism where we've had uh, a lot of up weeks in a row. Maybe a couple times we've stumbled, but the market seems to be resilient in the face of really high inflation that's persisting and some other cracks in the pavement. The Fed handed off the baton slowly. We're slowly handing off the baton. They started to taper in November. And we've gotten therapeutic news. Booster shots are being administered. Vaccines for kids are approved. So what this all adds up to is what I'm calling a permanent reopen. We've gone through these cycles of stops and starts, and I think we're done with the stops, which I think is where some of this optimism is coming from. There have been some cyclical indicators that have really struck uh, in the last few weeks. You look at consumer discretionary, the consumer discretionary sector versus consumer staples, and that can give you a cyclical indicator. Consumer discretionary has doubled the performance of consumer staples. Semiconductors versus software. Semiconductors have doubled the performance of software. And then you look at a size category like small caps versus large caps. Small caps have outperformed large caps by almost 200 basis points as of this recording. So what does that mean? It means that generally when you see patterns like that start to form in markets, it's good for cyclicality in the economy, which means that sectors and categories that tend to do well in cyclical expansions should do well in this market environment. So what exactly are those? Well, I already mentioned small caps. Uh, I love mentioning small caps. You're going to hear me talk about small caps as much as I possibly can. But small caps tend to do well, number one, in inflationary periods. Number two, in expansionary periods. And number three, if we do expect that rates are going to rise, which I do expect rates are going to rise, I know that sounds like a broken record, but I think eventually it happens, if we do expect rates to rise, you likely see pressure on those high growth sectors such as technology and communications, which are the biggest sectors in large cap indices in the US, in the S&P 500. Small cap sectors, the biggest sectors in the Russell 2000, for example, are healthcare and financials. So naturally, just by the sector makeup, small caps are insulated from some of that interest rate volatility. Now, the other thing that it means for cyclical categories, you can look at sectors like industrials, financials, I think travel and leisure sees another leg up here. But the other thing that it means is when we look at the yield curve. So if we think there's going to be a cyclical expansion, the yield curve should eventually steepen. Now, we've seen some flattening, meaning the short end of the curve has increased and the long end of the curve, so the 10-year portion, has decreased slightly. So there's been a flattening of the curve, which is uh, sort of unconventional in an environment like this. But I think as some of these supply and demand factors figure themselves out, you do see a steepening in the curve through the end of the year and as 2022 takes shape. So I am optimistic through the end of the year. I do think that there is a lot of appetite for 
consumers to continue spending despite inflationary pressures. I think we're all still crossing our fingers that this is transitory. And I think that there's record high profit margins in the S&P 500 companies, and they've been able to absorb these inflationary pressures as well. Now, it becomes a much more mixed boat as we get into 2022, which I'll talk about on podcasts coming down the pike. But for now, I think we're okay. I think that we can be positioned in cyclical areas, we can be positioned in small caps, and we can look forward to a happy holiday season. Now on to our guest for this episode, who needs really no introduction, Brandon Copeland. He is here to talk about his passion in teaching people about finances. I think the end of the year is a great time to be talking about this topic. There's so much I can say about Brandon, but here are some highlights. He's a linebacker for the Atlanta Falcons. In 2021, he was on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list as one of the brightest young innovators. He's the professor of Life 101 at Penn. He's a member of CNBC's Financial Wellness Council. He received the Alan Page Community Service Award for Extraordinary Dedication to Service, Social Justice, and Equality in 2020. And he's the host of a new podcast called Money Music Culture. Let's get to the interview. Well, Brandon, I could not be more excited to have you here, mostly because I think the mission that you have aligns perfectly with SoFi's mission of helping people find financial freedom. So first and foremost, I want you to tell us, tell me, tell our listeners about your mission and why this is so important to you. Yeah. So for me, when it comes to financial education, I have, I have two missions. One is to democratize the access to information. I think that when I came into the NFL, when I went to an Ivy League school, I had the opportunity to be exposed to different things, strategies, people, guidance, investments that I would have never had the opportunity to to even have seen unless I was an NFL player. Right. Um, I think that that's unfair. I think that my mom should have that access. I think my brother and my cousins and everyone should have that access. So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to financial education, I think that when you see a lot of the different things that us as individuals deal with from a mental health standpoint, from a stress standpoint, I think that some of those things are caused by lack of confidence in your financial well-being, not understanding your money, making the wrong decision when purchasing your home or or opening up every single credit card that they try to sell you at the register to get a discount today. So my goal is to also help people feel more whole, more happy on a day-to-day basis. And my tool with that is by helping them feel more confident in their money. Yeah. I mean, it's overwhelming, right? And especially if you're younger, let's say college, and you're just entering the adult world, starting to make your own money, it's overwhelming to understand what do I do with it first, right? Do I pay down my debt? Do I start investing? Should I have credit cards? Because you're supposed to build a credit history. And it's really difficult to figure out what do I start with? And then once you get started, there's so many options out there. And, and we can get into some of this later. But I think one of the benefits to younger people today is all the information that's available to them. One of the drawbacks is that a lot of people just get overwhelmed by it, don't know how to use it properly. So let's talk quickly, too, about your class, which is called Life 101, and it's about building financial literacy. 
what does financial literacy mean to you in that sense? So when you're when you're teaching that class, what are you trying to teach them exactly? Yeah, um, and also just on that topic, we've also recently made this class available to everyone online. So at at hiamil.com, literally anyone can take the course, the same course that I teach at Penn. Um, high school students can take it for credit now on their transcript as well too. So when we talk about that, like Life 101, I remember when I went to Penn and, and originally pitched them the idea, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, we need a more scholastic title. And I'm like, uh, it's life. <laughs> like all the things we deal with in life, we need to be talking about in the classroom before we're faced with those major decisions, right? And so how to buy a house, what is your credit score? What makes it up? I remember being in, in college and, and coming into the league and people like, oh, that's good debt, good debt. Where I'm from, there is no such thing as good debt. Can you explain that to me, right? So just really diving into some of these things that I call constants in life, right? Like we know the answers to the tests or we know the different tests we will get as we try to continue to grow in our own as individuals, right? One day you're going to want to buy a car or lease it. One day you're going to want to buy a house, right? And these decisions are extremely, extremely important. However, we don't practice them. We don't get taught about them beforehand. And so you could end up like me in 2017, purchasing your first house when they slide that 70 page closing disclosure across the table to you, you could end up looking at it like me and just kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, I hope it's right. Right. Looks like a different language. Yeah, exactly. Completely different language. So I'm weary of the term financial literacy because I think that some people hear it and it's like, hey, like being literate. So some people think it's like it means you're stupid if you don't understand these things when really we should all strip that anxiousness away from ourselves or that pressure away from ourselves of feeling like we should know this information or understand our 401ks because no one has ever taught us this information. Like there weren't classes in this in middle school and high school where it's like, hey, like we taught you two times two equals four. Right. So you should know the answer to what a closing disclosure looks like or things you should ask for as a tenant before moving into your first apartment or condo. And so we as individuals got to take that pressure away. It's what we try to create that environment in our class. We got to be comfortable saying, hey, I don't know this. And I need you to break it down for me in terms that I understand. So my goal for my students for when they leave the classroom is for not only for them to be able to understand it and apply it to their lives, but more importantly, the, the, the exam for my students is you have to teach this stuff to high school students in Philly. I need to know that you understand this well enough that you can teach it to a high schooler. And one, I think it helps spread the information. But more importantly, I hope the students in my class feel comfortable. Hey, if I could teach it to a random high school kid in Philly, I could teach this to my cousin. I could teach this to my mother. And now we can really change bloodlines and create, hopefully, I don't even want to say generational wealth. It's just more, I just want my, my students to be comfortable and confident throughout their own lives. I love that because one of the things that I say to myself and I say to people that I mentor all the time is, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's major. And again, I think for me, it's not like I grew up wanting to be an educator or a professor at Penn. Right? To be honest with you, I'm kind of surprised I got into Penn, you know? Uh, 
<laughs> so so the, the number one lesson when you come to my class is like, hey, kids, you can do anything. Look at me. I'm a professor here now. But more importantly, it, I want money to become a comfortable conversation in all of our homes. I think politics has been something that was taboo to talk about. Money has been something that was taboo to talk about. And now money is also becoming not not as as poignant as politics to discuss, but it's creeping up there where it's like, hey, if you're not thinking about this or if you're not talking about crypto, if you're not talking about these meme stocks, then what are you focused on? Right. Yeah, that's a perfect segue, actually. So I want to I want to talk about this topic. And, and I think you're a great person to ask about it. We used to talk about money or investing as building wealth, right? And that word wealth is a really heavy word sometimes. And, and it used to be used only associated with high net worth individuals. People never really considered themselves wealthy, unless they had a certain amount of assets. But today, because money and investing has become a lot more commonplace in conversation, building wealth feels more achievable. How do you think we got there? Yeah, I think simply put, as technology advances, we all have more and more access to things and and the outlets to discuss money that some of us never had access to before. Like, you know, when I was in high school, for example, I don't think that there were too many Reddit groups or I wasn't privy to the Reddit groups that were talking about investing, <laughs> you know, um, now again, it's, it's prevalent everywhere. You almost have to be hiding from the information now to completely avoid it. And I think now as news continues to have multiple ways to interact with us as individuals, meaning your phone, television, uh, now these notifications pop up. I think all of us are starting to ask more questions as well as individuals. Like the government is doing electric vehicles or or they want Biden wants everyone to be in electric vehicles by 2020 something. Oh, well, what company benefits from that? Right. And so as we continue to ask more questions, you go down this rabbit hole and and the outcome becomes where we are today. I think you have to be hiding from it to avoid it. That's completely true. The information is everywhere. Everybody's talking about it. Right. You can talk about it with a taxi driver. You can talk about trading stocks with the person behind the coffee counter. Everybody is doing it. At least that's how it feels. The individual investor today gets lumped into a category oftentimes of the meme stalkers right? Or people who are just following trends, they're following the herd, they're not doing a lot of research, you know, they get kind of criticized for that, it can have a negative connotation. And I think that's, that's unfair. I think that there's probably a decent amount of individual investors, even if they're new to the market, that are doing research, they're just doing it in a different way. Maybe they're not doing it in the ways that somebody like me learned in a textbook or in a classroom. And that doesn't necessarily make it right or wrong, right? How would you characterize today's newer investor? And, and maybe that's a younger investor. You, you deal with younger people probably much more often. How do you characterize them as investors? I agree with you. I think it's unfair to categorize everyone in as just meme traders or just kind of licking their finger, putting it in the air, and then just choosing to, to dive into this company that they saw on TV, right? I think, you know, we one of the lessons I learned as an NFL player is you never know what other people have in their pockets. So how do we not know that these individuals aren't just allocating a certain amount of their portfolio 
to this meme stock, for example, right? They're not just putting all of their life's earnings on GameStop, you know? But I think when I look at my students, I think that they're excited and curious about a lot of different passions or interests that they have, right? You might have a student in my course who is on the finance track or on the communications track, but secretly they have an interest in real estate and they actually have the gumption or which I love because that's how I am. They have the audacity to think that, hey, I can actually do this as well. And now because I'm a college student, I might not be able to buy my own home and start a flip today, but I can get access to real estate by investing in insert this stock here or this root here. You know, one of the things we talk about in our class that a lot of students like you get a lot of the head nods and and people really start engaging with is when students are starting to understand and young people starting to understand I can invest in and make money on the things that I love and I am passionate about. So now I love shopping for certain clothes or I love wearing certain shoes. Oh, I can invest in that. Okay, well, I know more about Nike versus Adidas than most people out there because I'm always on their website. Well, let me go ahead and invest in that. And I think that that's what you're seeing is young people who who are investing in the things that they are interested in and, and the things that they are consumers of. Yep. And you're absolutely right. One of the things that I've been talking about a lot. Somebody asked me recently, why do you think ETFs have grown so much in assets? Why have they hit a new record in assets this year? They're more accessible, right? They make investing more accessible. You can get a diversified portfolio of assets. You don't have to invest in every single stock. We, we all know those rules. But the other piece is that there are a ton of ETFs now that are thematic. And thematic investing is huge, especially with a younger generation, because they can choose a theme, they can choose a discipline, they can choose uh, electric vehicles, they can choose whatever the case may be, right, and invest in a very specific area of the market. Just like you said, it's something that they experience, they believe it in their everyday life, maybe they feel very passionately about a certain topic, and now it turns out they can actually put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, and I think the boom in ETF shows the sophistication in these investors, right? It shows that, hey, I understand I'm not a professional at this, so I don't have the time to choose the the winning horse in the electric vehicle race. But I feel strongly about this industry, so I know that this, this industry as a whole is going to appreciate, so let me put my dollars there. So I think, like you said, that boom in ETF shows the sophistication that these investors are bringing to the market nowadays. I mean, everything is accessible now to the newer investor because of technology platforms, right? SoFi is a great example of that. One of the things that has been maybe on the negative side is this idea of the gamification of investing, right? There are some platforms that it seems as if there's a little bit more of a a gamify aspect to the trading. Maybe it rewards you for trading. Maybe it's just the way that the interface looks. And then obviously the marriage of social media and investing. I mean, you mentioned Reddit, there's Twitter, there's all kinds of different social media that people are sharing investing ideas on. What's your take on the gamification and and the marriage of social media and investing? Yeah, I am a fan of it. You know, I know some people think that that's wild, but I think I'm a big believer in you have to meet people where they are. So quick sidebar, years ago, I told my dad he was trying to connect 
a little better with my younger brother. Well, my dad wants to call all the time. My younger brother wants to text. Hey, dad, well, it might be on you as a parent to just try to meet him where he is. I understand that one day I'll have to do that for my children, right? And and so now, you know, we look at where we are as a society and the people who are going to be the next big wigs, the next owner of investment banks and firms, they grew up playing video games and they grew up with gamifying everything. So I, I don't mind these companies trying to meet people with things that they're comfortable with because it's encouraging us all to feel comfortable and safe in it. You know, one more quick segue. I remember when I was at Penn and a senior, I, I was a captain of the team and I wanted a certain music played at our games. And I remember talking to the athletic department. They're like, well, it might piss off some of our alumni and all that stuff. And I'm like, listen, 30 years from now, I'm trying to create my experience here. 30 years from now, you're going to be reaching out to me, asking me for a check to donate to these buildings. So you better go ahead and make my experience as good as possible. You know, when we went to that next game, that song was playing, right? I think some people get upset because it's not the way it was when they were a child. And that's okay. Right. Right. Like this is not necessarily for you. You had your way and you have your process, but it might not be everyone else's process. And I think that that's okay personally. And and I think that's a great point that, you do have to find ways to engage with people in the ways that they're going to want to engage. I mean, one of the, obviously what we're doing right now is a podcast, right? Not everybody wants to get their information by reading a blog. Not everybody wants to get their information by watching television. Some people want to hear it. The, the gamification side of it, so I'm torn on it, honestly, if I'm being honest. I'm a little torn on it because on one hand, I don't want to encourage too much activity. I don't want to encourage people to try to be day traders, right, or try to even be swing traders because that's not necessarily a winning game a lot of the time. But the idea of meeting people where they are, speaking their language, right, and and I love the music example, too. It reminds me of recently my mom asked me if house music was music that you play in the house. <laughs> And, but you know what? She was open to hearing a song and, and understanding what I was talking about <laughs> after I stopped laughing. Okay, so let's talk about some of the vehicles that are out there. It, when you're talking to younger investors about using different vehicles, do you talk to them about individual stocks versus using ETFs and mutual funds? What do you tell them about those options? Yeah, I think it, it depends on their level of experience as an investor. For most people who are just trying to get started, I'm more of talk, talking to them about index funds, right? Just investing in the, the overall market, getting exposure to it. So you can use that as a, a way to learn about the different individual stocks as you go. So I'm a big believer in index funds and ETFs, even in my own portfolio. When I came into the league in 2013, I was a day trader. I was day trading options while in the NFL. And I quickly found out that I didn't have the time to do that. So now, you know, I, I, tr I have reallocated my portfolio to long-term investing, long-term individual stocks, but more of an emphasis on those sectors and those index funds that I think are, are winners in the long term, you know? So how does somebody know, let's say they've been investing for a little while now, and they've been using ETFs, mutual funds, maybe some individual stocks, how do they know when they're ready to start tapping into the more complex things like options or like crypto? Yeah, I think one, the first thing is when you're dissatisfied with the returns that the vanilla or traditional investing is getting you back in. And I want to make sure I emphasize the fact that I put that in air quotes because there's nothing wrong with that vanilla traditional investing because 
that's that's how you win in the long run, right? Just speaking from my own experience, for me, it was it was also kind of starting to be able to predict the outcomes of stocks based on certain catalysts. So you're looking for some type of catalyst that that will make your prediction on that stock right or wrong. So once I started seeing certain trends where it was like, man, I thought this was going to happen with this company's stock, and it did. However, I didn't have any money in it. Okay, well, you know, let's practice this. So let me make a prediction over here with virtual money or whatever, and just start practicing that. And after a few times of getting that right and not having any skin in the game, eventually you'll feel like, okay, but let me put a little bit of money where my mouth is, so to speak, or where my mind is. And and that's, for me, that was my own personal evolution. I, I don't want to rush anybody into that space, but I think that at a certain point, you, you, you know, as my buddy said, when he got married, you know, when you know, you know, you know, um, and it's different for everybody. I know that that's, that's a little general, but it is, it's different for everybody. You know, when you're ready, you know, when you hit puberty in the investing realm, so to speak. Oh, I like that. I like that analogy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is interesting, right. To think about not necessarily the predictions, but when you start to actually play in it, or when you start to actually participate in the market and have opinions about what you think the upside and the downside is on a particular investment, it, number one, it is the most humbling game you will ever play, right? And, and I don't want to imply that it's all a game. It's not. But the, And I say this a lot. The market serves free refills of humble pie, and the diner is open 24-7. You know what? Sometimes the most frustrating aspects of it are that you didn't necessarily miss anything with that particular investment. It might be an unrelated macroeconomic factor and the wind just blew a certain way for a while, right? And sentiment just shifted because sentiment shifts and that's what it does. And that can be really frustrating, but it also is a really great learning experience. And we're all learning all day long, right? I'm almost on my 18th year in the industry and I'm still wrong a lot. Okay, I want some thoughts on crypto, because I can promise you that people listening to this want to hear your thoughts on crypto and maybe also on NFTs. And if you've purchased any digital rocks, want to hear about <laughs> that too. And explain to me why you would do something like that. So thoughts on crypto, thoughts on NFTs, all this new stuff. Yeah. So I'll start with NFTs first. I don't fully understand them. You know, I'm a I am an expert in knowing what I do and what I don't know. And the things that I don't know, I stay away from. It's not worth my money yet. I might be missing out on the biggest thing of all time, and that's okay with me, right? <laughs> it's it's all good. But from a cryptocurrency standpoint, I'm a big believer. I need to, to change my profile pic and have the little red eyes and all of that type of stuff. But I think it's partly with my mission of just democratizing access to information. It's also, you know, helping serve the unbanked folks in our country and just in the world in general. It's it's democratizing currency, so to speak. I mean, I know some people have different feelings and opinions on that, but I, I mean, we just played in London uh, a few weeks ago and to be able to go over there and, you know, pay at the register in Bitcoin makes sense to me, right? Clearly, you know, you can have your credit card do it and all that stuff nowadays. I, I get that, but I'm just saying, like, from a long-term vision, it, it just makes sense to me. So I'm a I'm a big believer in cryptocurrency. I'm investing in crypto, and I have I've done well 
in crypto. Let's hope we keep doing well. Knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's, and I don't want to put you in a, in a, a category here, but there's a lot of athletes that have gotten behind it recently. Is it something that is, is taking the athletic world by storm or is it, how, how is that working? Is there a connection there? No, I, I definitely do know that there are a lot of guys in our locker room who are conscious of it and actively trying to invest in it. You know, I, I don't know if it's just an athlete thing. I know we haven't had any secret meetings or anything like that, but I do know a lot of what, what really sold me on it was a lot of the mentors that I have that work at hedge funds, that work at investment banks, when they started telling me that their personal assets were in it and that they were big believers in it, I figured that it was only a matter of time before their bank's assets would be in it and their company assets would be in it. I want to wrap this up with a question that where we can cover some stuff from your class. And, and I really liked this when I was looking at a lot of your material. I kept seeing these questions come up. You suggest some questions that people should ponder before they get started on their financial journey. And what struck me is that a couple of them are not finance related at all. So I want to hear from you. Why are these the questions that people should ask? And those questions are, what will make you happy? How do you define happiness? And what are your lifetime financial goals? The reason why I teach is it's literally from my own experience. I don't consider myself an expert. I walk into my class the first day and say, I'm not an expert of all. I don't have the time to be, but I'm on a financial journey. And I think that there's too many people who get to, you know, 50 plus and they write their tell all books. And I just, I feel that 50 year olds peers are like, why the heck didn't you share this while you were taking these risks and chances? Cause maybe we could all be writing our tell all books. So that's literally what I what I'm doing. And and from my experience in my high school life and early adult life, I was consumed with chasing money because I wanted to be a billionaire. And I also realized that the things that I wanted to do to help people in this world cost money. So for me, there was a, a dollar value on that. I wanted to send people to school and pay for people's educations and things like that. And I still want to do those things. But after a while and doing more research on my class, I realized, like, am I really chasing a number or am I chasing a lifestyle? Am I chasing a comfort system? Right. Is, is me, is my self-worth going to be, you know, feel like I checked the box once I hit a certain net worth? Or can I enjoy this process the entire time while I'm working to get there? And I, I realized that when I hadn't and, and I wasn't hitting the quote unquote number that I wanted, I didn't feel good about myself. So I started challenging myself to figure out what am I actually chasing? What would make Brandon Copeland happy? What is my why? And that's what I really want my students and just people in general to, to first answer because it's easy in the society where everything is accessible. We get on social media and we see everyone's highlight reel right? <laughs> they don't see any of the negative stuff. We see everyone's the best days that everyone's ever had. And it's easy for you to kind of go home and feel like I haven't made it. I'm not where I want to be. Um, so I don't want us all to get caught on that hamster wheel. I don't want us to feel like, oh, I don't have my whole life in order because the person next to me has more money than I do, right? I want us to first deal with ourselves and get to know ourselves better. And that's the differentiator, I think, in Life 101 as a money education class in general in, in comparison to the other classes. This is more of a 
uh, education of self. I think it's more important for us to attack those things because once we get that defined, now we have an actual finish line to then chase and reverse engineer our money decisions based off of. When I was chasing a number, I thought that I had to get to the top of the ladder before I pulled anybody else up. Well, no, now I realize we can all come up that ladder at the same time. It's a mindset thing that I really want people to change because we're really individuals in this life journey, not to get philosophical, but we're really trying to make the best of our own journey and just run the best race that we can individually run. And that's what I want us to get in touch with when we start to ask those questions. How do we define happiness? So now for me, I'm chasing a lifestyle. I'm chasing a comfort with my money. I want to do what I want when I want. And that doesn't have to be flying on private jets to Dubai just to blow money in the club. Like that's, that's not what I want. Right. But once I define those things now, we can go put pen to paper. We can make investments to make those things reality. Mm-hmm. You know what they play in that club? House music. House music. Not, there we go. Not in the house. In the club, mom. In the club. <laughs> you need to take your mom to a house music concert <laughs> at SoFi Stadium. I'll fly Let's my mom it. to a club. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it. look, that quote, I love that quote. I thought I had to get to the top of the ladder before I started pulling other people up. But we can all climb the ladder together. Brandon, we could all learn a lot from you. I feel like I got a mini Life 101 course today. So thank you so much for your time. Taking time out of your NFL season to do this podcast, I'm so grateful. Uh, I'm grateful that you had me. I appreciate you having me on. Wow. So many things that we could take away from that episode. So many elements of life advice, not just financial advice and and things to think about and ways to look at the world. That was an incredible interview. What I took away as some of the most important parts were first his quote about, you almost have to be hiding from the information to completely avoid it. Information about investing, conversations about investing are just pervasive in society today. And he's right. You, You would literally have to be hiding in order to not have these conversations or at least hear other people talking about it. So you might as well join in, get comfortable with it. We also talked a lot about building confidence in your financial decisions. And he said to meet yourself where you are in your investing journey. It doesn't matter how much experience you have. It doesn't matter when you started. It doesn't matter if you started five minutes ago, five hours ago, five years ago. Meet yourself where you are and start from that point. And then lastly, this idea that you don't have to wait until you think you've made it. And I loved, loved, loved his quote that said, I thought I had to get to the top of the ladder before I pulled anybody else up. Now I realize we can all come up that ladder at the same time. So we're all in this together. We, we may disagree at times about what's going to happen in the market, what we think the best investment is, the next hot dot, but we don't have to wait until we've figured it all out to get started and to move forward. So I really enjoyed that. I hope everybody else enjoyed that. And I look very much forward to getting the next episode out to you soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at sofi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Young Strat. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, 
Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit sofi.com legal.